Good morning. So the last Sunday before school starts, all the moms are happy. <laughs> well, if you're visiting with us uh, this morning, welcome. And uh, my name is Carl Carr. I'm, I'm one of the teachers here at Tumble Bible Church. And it's our habit here uh, at TBC for our senior pastor to give about two-thirds or so of the morning teachings uh, and for other elders and ministry leaders uh, to give the other one-third of the teachings uh, so that our church can kind of hear from the hearts of all of our ministry team. And this also affords uh, Skeet uh, time to participate in other aspects of ministry as well. So this week... And next week, we are doing a very short two-week mini-series titled The Word, What what We Believe About the Bible. And this week, we will examine inspiration and inerrancy. And then next week, John Hattenberger is going to examine authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And then following that week, we will kick off our fall sermon series uh, titled Thinking Big. And so, inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is where we're going to focus uh, today. So, let me just begin the inspiration of Scripture this morning with a question for you to consider. Let's just consider that you're going to uh, build a house, and you have this certain floor plan in mind, and you share with me what that floor plan is, what your dream is for what this house is would look like. And then based upon that floor plan that that you shared with me, I go home and I go and I find the website titled House Blueprints for Idiots. And I draw up the entire plans for your house, including the foundation, the electric, the plumbing, all those things. And now as your friend, I, I go to you with these plans and I present them to you as my gift, you know because I'm your friend, okay? Now, since you are my friend, you realize that I have no training whatsoever in planning and building houses. And and so you ask, well, where did you get these plans? And I respond proudly that I did them myself for you, because you're my friend. Well, you, of course, respond by asking, well, have you ever made house plans before? And I say, nope but I use the internet. Now, despite our friendship, would you have enough faith to build your home according to these plans that I made? Well, I hope the answer is no, uh, because although I may know a lot about some things, I know very little and have very little training or experience, well, none actually, in building or designing houses. Uh, what you would really want would be plans from a legitimate and reputable source, right? So, the point is this. When it comes to important matters, the source of your guidance is very, very important. Several years ago, it's longer than I thought, when the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, was introduced as a bill... As a physician, I set out to kind of discover what this bill was really all about. Now, this was important to me because the outcome of this bill, were it placed into law, could impact my practice and my patients. 
And I really wanted to know, okay, what's the end game of Obamacare? And where is all this heading? And so I began my information quest by doing the worst thing that you could possibly do, and that was by listening to the media. So the first television show that I found was going to be a comprehensive television show explaining Obamacare by a guy named Glenn Beck. Now, that was supposed to give me a a comprehensive evaluation of the Affordable Care Act and what it was all about. Well, the show was a little frightening, I have to tell you, when I listened to it from a physician's uh, standpoint, but it actually seemed very detailed. And even better, Glenn Beck came across as a pretty passionate guy when it came to conservative Christian causes as well. So the next day, I was pretty excited about my newfound knowledge and about the show, and I started talking to a couple of my Christian colleagues about the show and and how I believe that the host was a Christian as well. And one of my friends got a funny look on his face, and he turned to me and he said, you do know that Glenn Beck is a Mormon, right? Well, I, I stopped right there, and I thought, hmm... Suddenly, my faith in what he had said was not not quite as as solid. Now, even though some of the things that he had to say made perfect sense to me, I was not so sure that I should be basing my opinions about something that was so important to me upon the opinions of someone that had embraced the ideas of the Mormon church. So we're off to a rousing start. We've talked about Obamacare, Mormons, and Glenn Beck, and we're just getting started. No one's rushed the stage. Okay. <clears throat> but why did I have such a change of heart about the contents of that show? It had nothing to do with the content of the show. My heart changed about this show because when it comes to accepting guidance and truth about important matters, the credibility of the source is crucial and it matters greatly. You see, you should never fully trust guidance if you don't fully trust the source of that guidance. And it's for this very reason that the inspiration of Scripture is such a watershed issue for believers. So, there are are 66 books in the Bible, and there's about 40 human authors. And how these authors wrote the Bible is pivotal to how one interprets the validity of Scripture as God's written revelation. In other words, the credibility of the Bible lies in the credibility of its source. And the credibility of the Bible's source rests squarely upon its authorship. So let's begin this morning by turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, they're on the screen and there are Bibles under the end of each row. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, go all the way down to verse 16 and 17. Beginning in verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And now that you're there, turn with me a little further back to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
We're going to go all the way down to verse 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So these two verses form the cornerstone of the evangelical understanding of inspiration. In these verses, we see that Scripture was breathed out by God to the human authors, and then we see that the human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit in their writing of Scripture. As a result, when we say that the Bible is inspired, what we mean is this. And this was the definition given to me by Dr. Kreider at DTS. He says, Inspiration is the method enacted by God's providence through the Holy Spirit, whereby human authors were supernaturally guided and controlled in the entire writing of the original text of Scripture to produce a verbal record of God's intended message. Without limiting the creative and active participation of the human authors, God superintended their efforts to produce, in language, the actual words of God. Therefore, when we speak of inspiration, it is the scriptures and not the authors that are inspired. So, if one accepts the evangelical definition of inspiration, then the ultimate source of the entire contents of the Bible is God himself. You will find, though, that the challenge to understanding inspiration is how do you bridge the gap from this breathed-out message from a perfect God to fallible human authors to then produce perfect scriptures? How exactly was a supernatural translated in human efforts without tainting God's intended message? And I think that's exactly what the passage from Second Peter that we read addresses when he says that scripture... It was not man's interpretation of what God said, but rather that the writing of Scripture was superintended and controlled by the guiding power of the Holy Spirit. So why is this doctrine of inspiration so important for the believer? Well, it's because this doctrine tells us that the ultimate author of Scripture is God. And if God is the author, then we know that the source of the Bible is ultimately credible. And for us, the the Bible is something that is completely trustworthy. Now, with that in mind, I want you to consider for just a moment the implications if the human authors of Scripture, like Paul and Jonah and Peter, had actually wrote Scripture based upon their interpretation of God's message. And they were left without the Holy Spirit superintending their efforts. In other words, what if the authors were inspired, but their words were not? I think what you would immediately realize is that the credibility of Scripture would then rest not upon God, but upon the human and not-so-perfect authors. And as a result, you could be certain that although their writings may be very good, they in no way would be perfect and therefore would not be completely reliable then the Christian would be left to decide what in Scripture was useful and true and what was not. And and as you can imagine, every individual believer would probably have a different opinion about what in Scripture was valid and what was not. 
And what would result would be a brand of Christianity that was really subjective and it would be devoid of absolute truth. Now, this sounds crazy on the surface, but that is exactly how mainstream America approaches the Bible today. And they pick what they like and they disregard what they don't. More sadly, though, several large denominations now operate within this paradigm. And what has happened is they gutted the truth of God's Word and no longer have anything to offer a lost culture. Why? Because they're no longer any different from the culture. And then they don't understand why their membership has dropped by 45% in the last 10 years. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus describes believers as the salt of the earth but says if salt loses its taste, it's no longer good for anything and needs to be thrown out. And some of these denominations have been the living proof of that exact phrase. The church has this incredible revelation from God in Scripture so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can know Him and we can know how to follow Him as His disciples. So... Based upon this doctrine of inspiration, we understand, or we should understand, that any truth claim that contradicts Scripture must first dispute God's authorship and the inspired nature of of Scripture. This very argument is at the core of every one of Satan's strategies. From the garden till now, every temptation begins with the question, did God actually say that? So you can see that no one doctrine is more foundational to theology and to Christianity in general than the inspiration of Scripture. And as such, all other aspects of Scripture that we're going to discuss today and John will discuss next week, like inerrancy and authority and sufficiency, all of those are really corollaries that flow from the evangelical view of inspiration. Okay. So let's switch gears for just a moment, and I want to examine this first corollary of inspiration, or what we call inerrancy. In college, one of my undergraduate professors, what I'm going to call Dr. P, has um, had invited me during my junior year there at college to work with him on his current research project. And if I would volunteer and, and work for free... Uh, I could be listed as a secondary author on the published paper if our research was successful. So, so I said yes, because I, I thought this could be a real feather in my cap to be published as an undergraduate. So the topic of the research that we began was this, get this, climate restrictions on the migration patterns of brown-banded cockroaches. It's good stuff. <clears throat> so... We began our research by ordering thousands of these roaches and breeding them to make more roaches so that the walls of the lab were finally lined with plastic cages filled with roaches. And we would work in there. You had this constant background noise of a scratching going on. Anyway, it was awesome. So, you know, can you imagine someone breaking in at night? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Anyway, so... So what we did, though, in our research, we took all of these roaches and we put them in this glass chamber and we raised the temperature five degrees at a time. 
Okay, and then at each interval of temperature, we would make observations about their activity, breeding habits, all these things, and we'd make observations about them. And we would continue to increase the temperature at these five-degree increments until an estimated half of the roaches died. That temperature at which half of the roaches died, we assigned this the HLT50, or the hot lethal temperature of 50% of the roaches. And then we took the same surviving roaches, the ones who lived through that, and we subjected them to increasingly cold temperatures. And in the same way, we did that until we killed off half of them, and we assigned this temperature as the CLT50, you guessed it, the cold lethal temperature, okay? Now, Dr. P, he felt that these numbers were important because this roach, particular roach population, it was thought to be the main vector by which several diseases were spread. And if we could correlate the temperature restrictions on these roaches with the geographical distribution of these illnesses, then we could further support that cockroaches were spreading these illnesses. Research grant money at work, right? Okay, so <clears throat> as it turned out, the HLT50 and our CLT50 did in fact correlate geographically with these disease migrations. And so we submitted the paper for publishing. Yay, my name's on it, Dr. P's name's on it. And the editor of the journal was actually, where we submitted it, he was actually quite excited and he wanted to lead the journal issue, make this the lead story with these findings. And he requested that we do further tests on other climate parameters uh, uh, like pressure and humidity and those kind of things on our roaches. And so Dr. P agreed. So we started phase two of roach torture that had survived our experiment. So all the roaches that we had now were the ones who had survived the initial experiments. And we put them and their offspring, because they'd had children by now, and... We put them and their offspring in the chamber, and the first thing we did was go ahead and raise the temperature up to the HLT50 that kills 50% of roaches. And do you know what happened? None of them died. Okay? It was really hot in there, and it was like they were at the beach. They were having a good time. So we had to increase the chamber, get this, by another 40 degrees before we saw another single roach die. That's frightening on some levels, but... And, you know, the same thing happened, not as extreme, but the same thing happened when you drop the temperature down to cold. And we also noticed something, that the roaches we thought we died at cold temperature that wouldn't move and were, you know, legs up and dead looking, if you warmed it up, it flipped over and walked off. So apparently, surviving roaches acclimated quite quickly to temperatures, extremes. And so our conclusions about the association between viral spread of diseases and the limitation of cockroach migration was false. And it had already been published out there. So I was embarrassed to death. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be part of Dr. P, and he's a pariah of the science community now. And because we didn't double-check these results properly. But, you know, Dr. Pete, he wasn't actually bothered at all. And he said, well, you know, this is how science advances. He said, besides, half the papers in scientific journals turn out to have false conclusions because of false data anyway. 
and my budding scientific mind was just crushed by this, you know. So, now, the point of this story, and there is one, I promise. Now, you, you see from this example how one very subtle error resulted in flawed data that led to inaccurate conclusions. So, as a result of this subtle error, all the data that was we had produced could no longer be trusted, and you could no longer draw conclusions from it. And so you can see from this example, and the point I'm trying to hammer home, is that conclusions and decisions based upon errant data will also be errant and can't be trusted. Now here's the rub. As believers, we base our lives upon the truth of Scripture, and we guide our decisions with Scripture as well. And if Scripture is flawed, or even has some error, then it would not be trustworthy as guidance. The point is that if Scripture is not completely accurate, then we shouldn't trust it at all. And inerrancy becomes an all-or-nothing proposition. And if this is true, and the inerrancy of Scripture is compromised, then all the corollaries that I talked about of inspiration will fall in succession as well. So what is important is that we either accept all of Scripture as inerrant or we should reject it all. So how do we define inerrancy? And I'm going to refer back to my DTS days again for this little definition. So inerrancy means that Scripture in its original form is true in everything that it claims and in every lesson that it teaches. Although some passages may seem erroneous to the finite mind of the present, the Bible will be found to be wholly true and cohesive when all of the facts are eventually known in full. In all subjects and fields addressed by Scripture, the Bible consistently and coherently speaks truth. So we argue that Scripture is wholly inerrant because of the doctrine of inspiration. The Scriptures, as an act of a holy, inerrant God, are a God-breathed entity and are, in fact, the words of God. So as the words of an inerrant God, the Scriptures must also be inerrant and completely true. In this way, inerrancy and inspiration must always be considered inseparable. So several months ago in our, in our first hour class, we were studying the canon of Scripture and inerrancy. And one of the more fascinating discoveries that we examined was about the perseverance of the accuracy of the Bible copies over time. So through archaeological finds, scriptures that were found, that were copied by hand, thousands and thousands of years apart, we were then able to compare those, and with the exception of a few punctuation differences, they were found to be exactly the same. Now, when you consider that this phenomenon has never been the case with any other ancient writings, I can only conclude that the Holy Spirit was at work in this as well. But then as a result, the copies of Scripture that we have in Hebrew and Greek that we base our modern translations upon are quite reliable as well. And most importantly, we have a Bible in our hands right now that can be trusted. So, is the doctrine or idea of inerrancy just a modern invention of theologians? I want you to turn with me now, and we're going to go through several scriptures, but I want you to start in 1 Corinthians and go down to chapter 2. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
We're going to look at verses 10 through 13. So 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. Paul says, beginning in verse 10, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, i.e. Scripture. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the Word of God, Scripture, is imparted by the Spirit in words and is accepted as truth by believers. Now, turn down to uh, John chapter 1, the first chapter of John. And John jumps in in the first five verses of chapter 1. And he says, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Throughout Scripture, the Word and Jesus are used synonymously. And so now we see that Jesus embodies the Word of God and embodies the truth. He is the ultimate truth incarnate. Now, I want you to turn to an interesting passage, uh, John chapter 18, and go down to verse 37. So John 18, verse 37. Pilate is interviewing Jesus. So beginning in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answers, You say that I'm a king. But for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So you you see this progression in these three verses that the word of God as truth is imparted to those who are spiritual. Jesus embodies the word and is truth and Jesus came to bear witness to this truth of God's word. Now, look at this emphatic proclamation by Jesus of this very thing in John chapter 14, verse 6. Just one verse. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we're going to go to one last passage, and it's a little bit of a long one, but turn to John chapter 17. And we're going to go from verse 6 all the way through verse uh, 17. And in this passage, Jesus prays for his followers shortly before his death. So John chapter 17, verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now listen carefully to the last three verses. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then Jesus says something. He says, sanctify them in the truth, because your word is truth. So there are three major points that I want to summarize from all these verses that we just went through uh, that speaks to inerrancy uh, from within these passages. Number one. Here and throughout Scripture, God's Word is synonymous with truth. Number two, Jesus came to embody the Word and to give witness to the truth of the Word. And number three, as believers, our growth as disciples, our sanctification, cannot be separated from being in God's Word. Okay? Not only that, But our sanctification is actually fueled by being in God's Word. In other words, you can't grow without the Word. So what is this application today? Where can we go uh, for an application for this inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture? Well, we have this amazing gift in words from God that we can fully trust to reveal God to us, to guide us, and to grow us in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. The Bible for Christians is the book and should be our constant source of reference, of comfort, of guidance. Not that we worship the book, but that we worship the one who created the book for us. Now, in my office, when I do wellness exams and sports physicals on some of the older teens... I will also, I'll often ask them what they plan on doing for a career. Uh, this last week, I had a 16-year-old in my office, and I asked him, what are his plans? And, and he said, with all sincerity, all sincerity, without blinking an eye, he says, I am going to be a cardiologist. So I said to him, so you really like school and the hard sciences then, huh? And he said, no, I'm not taking that stuff. I hate science. And I said, really? Then what made you want to be a cardiologist? Because there is a lot of science between you and being a cardiologist. And he said, well, my dad's cardiologist drives a Bentley GT, and I could see myself in that. (laughs) Now, I I had to laugh at that. But, But when you think about it, this is the very approach that so many Christians take to following Christ. 
They, in effect, say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really interested in reading the Bible. I'm a Christian and I'm interested in all things Christian, but if God wants to tell me something, He'll let me know. Or maybe, I love to worship on Sunday, but I'm not really interested in what God has to say about my life. And as a result, we have these living Christian caricatures instead of disciples that are filling the church. Several years ago at, at Christmas, when, when my daughters were, were still very small, we decided to buy one of those giant play kitchens that have lights and buzzers and pots and pans and food and everything. And, and Carrie and I just knew that, man, they'd go crazy over this thing because they were always playing kitchen in their rooms, okay? So on Christmas Eve, we, we took this thing out, and it was still in a huge box, and, and we wrapped it in Christmas paper for them uh, to open. I mean, it, w- it was going to be the best present ever that a parent could ever give their young daughters. I just knew this. And, and so Christmas came, and, and the girls ran downstairs to look at what, you know, Christmas presents were there, and, and they saw this huge package. And when they saw it, saw it, they realized that it was a play kitchen, and they screamed with excitement. And so we opened the box, and and I'm feeling like a great dad, and we opened the box, and we slid the kitchen out the side of this big old box. And then, after playing with the kitchen for a few minutes, my daughter's attention then shifted to this box. And some of y'all have children, right? (laughs) And before long, all their attention and fun was with playing inside that stinking box. And for the next three weeks, the kitchen sat alone while my girls played every day in that box. I finally gave in and I cut a door and a window in the box. And oh yeah, we drew a kitchen on the wall inside the box. Because they wanted to take their play utensils from the kitchen inside that box to play kitchen. So, don't get me wrong. Carrie and I were happy that they were having fun. But I have to tell you, we were a little frustrated because those play kitchens almost cost as much as a real kitchen. (laughs) And they loved the box more than the actual gift that we gave them. I I think that sometimes God feels a little bit like I did on that Christmas morning because some of us treat God's Word like my kids treated that kitchen. Now, what do I mean? Well, I know quite a few of you who always read whatever the latest Christian book is that's out there, but you rarely ever open the Bible, much less give it any real study. And if you were to tell the truth, some of you would admit to reading more than 10 books last year, but you've never read the entire Bible. And by doing so, we are spending all of our time on the box and ignoring God's gift. God's greatest gift. And instead, we construct whole life plans and theologies around extra-biblical sources And guess what? We miss it when these sources contradict Scripture. Why? Because we don't know what Scripture says. Paul says in Ephesians that a sign of maturity is that you are not blown by every wind of doctrine and cunning scheme because you're grounded 
in the Word. I, I say these things not to beat you down or to make you feel guilty, but rather to remind you that we have this precious gift from God. His very words to us, complete and errant truth that was given to us to show us how to live and how to truly follow Him. And as a Christian, we should desire His Word like food. We should read it, study it, be taught from it, and use it. And in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, God's Word has real power to encourage you. It has real power to expose sin in your life and to change the direction of your life. I'm going to encourage you to stop opening your Bible only to look for a scripture that will support the life that you've made for yourself. Instead, I want you to humbly and expectantly approach God's Word because every time you open the Bible, you have an actual real chance of encountering the Father. So, Let me close with this challenge for you this morning. I'm going to challenge you to starting now, school year is about to begin, I want you to make a commitment this week to make God's Word a part of your life. Man, there are programs online to help you read the Bible through. Uh, We have right now media, not to find more books to read, but there are several guides and to help you study and read the Bible. Begin with the Gospel of John. Begin wherever you want. Get into the Bible. We have Bible classes here in the first hour. We have small groups that meet and study the Bible. Men's groups, women's groups. However you can make it happen, I'm going to challenge you to make the study of the Bible a real part of your life for just six months. I'm going to ask you to just commit to real study with other people or alone or however you do it, I'm going to ask you to commit to it for just six months. And the inspired and errant Word of God will change you. This is a challenge that comes with a guarantee. If you will see it through for six months, God will change your life. So I'm going to close this morning with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's not going to be on the screen, but... It says, Hebrews four twelve. it says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's close in prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come before you uh, this morning as the uh, worship team comes forward. Lord, we... We come before you this morning with every aspect of life making us busy and in a hurry. And quite often, even as the church, Lord, we surround ourselves and focus on the packaging and the pageantry of Christianity. And meanwhile, your word gathers dust on our shelves. Your weary words that were written to us, this incredible gift. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict us, Lord, And that through your word that you would change our hearts, make us new, uh, Lord, so that we can serve you, so that we can be disciples who follow you. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.